heavenly. That's what this, that's what this time's about. It's the time when, when heaven and earth overlapped and interlocked. When the eternal Son of God stepped into our world. That's what this season's about. And I do pray that your hearts are filled with the joy of this season, a, a unique thrill that only comes this time of year, not because of you know, the beautiful trees and lights and decorations and the gifts, uh, but because we're reminded in powerful music and in many ways uh, just how glorious Jesus is. And I do pray that your heart would be truly touched with how wonderful and glorious he truly is. Well, as we transition now into our sermon, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon today. It's, we are continuing along in our top 316s of the Bible, going in canonical order, and we come this week to the next in our series, Paul's letter to the Colossians, Colossians 316. And for context, I'm going to back up and I'm going to read verses 12 through 17. Now, I invite you to please stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. Colossians chapter 3. We'll read together verses 12 through 17. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is God's holy word for us, his people today. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word. Lord Jesus Christ, where else can we go? Where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Holy Spirit, you who inspired the prophets of old, you who inspired the apostles and who inspired the scriptures and gave us the very words of God, we pray that you would move upon our hearts and take these words inspired long ago and make them live in each one of us today. And Father, we pray that you would open our eyes, open our ears, and show us yourself and meet with us through your word that we might give glory to Christ, and through him we may worship you to the glory of your name. We ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated.
In the days of Jesus, the temple in Jerusalem had an elaborate multi-part structure. When Jesus visited the temple in the Gospels, this is what he would have seen. Upon ascending the mountain, Mount Zion, going up the hill and seeing the city on a hill, Jerusalem, going up the mountain, as you pass through the outer walls of the temple, you enter into the gigantic, enormous outer court called the Court of the Gentiles. This was basically the tourist area of the temple complex. Herod, King Herod, had built this temple. I'm sorry, he enlarged the temple. It was built after the Israelites returned from exile in Babylon and in Persia. And Herod, when he became king, he had extended the building. He had added tons and tons of stuff to the, to the complex. And so now it was one of the greatest and most elaborate temples in the world. And so it was a great spot for pilgrimage and for tourism. Pagans who just like to go look at pretty temples would say, man, we got to get to Jerusalem. And so they would come and visit. And there's where you can get your coffee mugs and your hoodies and your tumblers. <laughs> and you could take your selfies and you could, you know... And it was a tourist attraction. So people could come on pilgrimage and they could come and pay their respects to Israel's God. If he has a great temple, he must be a great God. And so that's just where they would go. The court of the Gentiles. It was a place for all nations to come and marvel at the temple. Now this is the outer court. It's the big courtyard. You're inside the walls. The true temple complex is in front of you. And it's a, and it's a massive, magnificent monument to the God of Israel. But Gentiles couldn't go any further than that. If you're not Jewish, you cannot go any further. And there are walls and gates and signs in multiple languages that say, if you're not Jewish, we will kill you if you cross this barrier. So it was, they were very serious. We're glad you're here. We want your money. Don't come past this line. That was the deal. Now, if, you, if you're Jewish, not Gentile, you get to go further in. And past the gate that separated the Gentiles from the Jews, there was the inner court. And the inner court had two sections. Had two sections. As you come in, the first section was called the court of women. If you're Jew, a Jewish woman, you don't have to stay out with the Gentiles. You get to come in. You're separate from them. But there was a, a wall there as well. And the women could go that far. And this reflected the practices of synagogues of the day. And this is also reflected in some Jewish synagogues. Uh, Orthodox synagogues today as well, where there's a partition and a separation between men and women. They worship in different sections of the synagogue. Some synagogues still practice this. Well, it was practiced in the temple as well. The court of the women ended, and then beyond that, the men could go. And then you had the, the next department or the next section of the inner court, the court of men. And in the, in the inner court, that's where you could come and you could pray, you could sing, you could have your small groups, your Bible studies, teachers would come in there and teach. So when Jesus is teaching in the temple, he's not out there with the Gentiles, he's in the inner court, he's in the courtyard, the court of the men. This is where you could worship and pray and sing and teach and have disciples and have classes. Beyond that was the holy place. Now, women had their section, men had their section. The holy place, not just anybody could go. Only priests were allowed in there. The huge, huge organization of priests 
were able to go into the holy place where the altar was and the basin for washing. And this is where people would take their sacrifices. Men would take the sacrifices from the court of the men and they would take them to hand them off to the priest in all the ritually prescribed ways you're supposed to do that. Also in the inner court, it's where the buying and selling was taking place. You know, when Jesus overturned the tables, that was in the inner court because people were coming from all over Israel or Jews from other nations were traveling. You can't bring your lamb or your sheep or your bull. You can't bring those across the ocean. And it's very difficult for some people to bring them from uh, a faraway area of Israel, up in Galilee, for example, you could bring your own animal, but what if it gets, what if it trips and breaks its leg, or if it, you know, a, a dog or something snips it? Well, now it's impure, it's imperfect. Now you got to go all the way back and get another sheep, and come. so they had ritually pure animals for sale, and you could just bring your money, buy your sheep, and then walk it over. And you buy your birds and whatever else you need for your sacrifices, and it was a, it was a big money business. Those are the tables Jesus flipped over. Disrupting the sacrificial process. Well, you take your animal, you hand it off to the priest, and then the priests were, had two functions. They were butchers, and they did barbecues. <laughs> That's what they did. Because you give this animal to the priest, and, and you know, he has you do the ritually prescribed thing the law of Moses says to do, and then that animal has to be sa- uh, slaughtered. So they have an area in the holy place where you slaughter the animal, you butcher it, you carve it up in the way you're supposed to do, depending on what kind of sacrifice is being offered. And there were like a bunch of different kinds in Leviticus. And then you take it over to the altars, and then you have the priests who are basically there with their chef's hat and their aprons and their spatulas, and they're barbecuing the sacrifices. (laughs) That's really what they did. So there's grease and soot and smoke, and it would have smelled like a barbecue, because they're they're cooking lamb and bulls and, you know, steaks smell good when they're cooking. So this is what's going on. Now, they're doing this as an act of worship because that's how the sacrificial system worked. And some sacrifices were burned up entirely, but some sacrifices required the worshiper and the priest to share a meal. So like you're having a meal with God. And so you cook a certain part and you bring it over and the worshiper is supposed to have a little steak or a lamb chop or whatever the case may be. So it was, a, it was also like a kind of a restaurant. <laughs> and so we don't think about the temple this way, right? But it like... Put yourself there. It's like, you know, there's a real people walking around and there's real things to be done. And this was a part of worship, sacrificial worship. This is not unique to Israel. This is how animal sacrifice-based worship worked in the ancient world. Greeks and Romans would do the same thing at their shrines to their gods as well. Now, the priests are in the holy place. You can't just waltz in there and... Go up to the altar yourself. You have to be a priest. And then inside the next chamber was the furthest end of the temple you could go. And now you're in the most holy place. Or sometimes it's called the holy of holies. And this is the area where only the high priest, not just any priest, the high priest can go. And he can only go in there once a year. Because in there is the Ark of the Covenant. And that's supposed to be where God dwells. Yeah, God's everywhere. Yeah, God's in the whole temple. But he's really in the Holy of Holies especially. And so the way this whole design is set up is it's set up from the outside in. You go from the largest area, the court of the Gentiles, to the smallest area. You go from the area where anybody can go to the area where only one person can go once a year. 
And really this structure is from the least holy to the most holy. As the space gets holier, the person in that space must be holier in order to enter that space. That's the way it's working. If you're the furthest out, you need the least amount of holiness to be there. That's Gentiles. To go into the inner court, you need more. To go into the holy place, you need more. To go into the most holy place, you got to be most holy. In human terms. This holiness was understood as ritual purity. The further into the temple, the greater your purity must be. The further in you go, the more intense the worship becomes because the closer you get to God, whose spirit dwells within the most holy place. This is the conceptual map onto the physical map of the temple structure. Now, in our passage this morning, Paul pulls together several points that we have seen over the past few weeks in this series... And I'm going to relate these things to this temple structure because this passage, Colossians 3.16, is about worship. And that's why today's topic is worship in the new temple. So this is what we've seen the last few weeks. In Luke 3.16, we saw that the Holy Spirit works through the waters of baptism by faith to cleanse us of our sins. In John 3.16, we saw that God sent His Son to save every believer in the world from perishing and give them eternal life. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, we saw that the church is God's new temple and that His Spirit dwells in our midst and makes us His new most holy place, His new holy of holies. And then last week in Galatians 3.16, we saw that in Christ, we who believe and have been baptized, both Jew and Gentile equally, are the family of Abraham, the true Israel, the heirs of God under the new covenant. Now this week in Colossians 3.16, we will see how we are to worship God. In this new temple. To draw all these pieces together, let's start with the first issue the new worshipers. If there's new worship in a new temple, let's start by identifying who are the new worshipers who come to worship in this new temple. And in our text, I want to identify three qualities of these new worshipers that help us understand who they are. So the first is their identity. First quality is their identity. These new worshipers are called something specific in verse 12. Colossians 3.12, Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Who are these new worshipers? They are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Paul says the the worshipers are the elect. And we have another word for that in the Bible, the chosen people. Now normally we think chosen people, Jews. But under the new covenant, 
we see that the chosen people was never simply those who have a bloodline connection to Abraham. Because any Gentile in the Old Testament could have converted to become a Jew and would have been fully included, even though they're not descended from Abraham at all. Abraham's family has always been those who embrace Abraham's faith. We saw this when we looked at Galatians 3.16. And here Paul says... You Colossians, Gentiles, and Jews together in one church, but here possibly predominantly Gentiles, he says, you're God's chosen people. You're the chosen ones. You're the elect of God. Who are the new worshipers? It's Abraham's family, the true Israel under the new covenant in Christ. You see, in Christ, the identity of Israel gets redefined. Because now Israel... Or as Paul says in Galatians 6, the Israel of God is Christ and everyone who is in Christ by faith. That's Israel. That's the chosen people. That's the people of God. And those can be Jews or Gentiles. There's no longer any distinction. Look also in verses 9 to 11 to see further identification. Paul says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self your old man, who you used to be, with its practices, and you've put on the new self, a new man, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and Christ is in all. All these other distinctions melt away. And you are just simply the people of God. The family of Abraham. Those who stand to inherit the promises and the blessings. Or as Paul says in Philippians 3.3, we, speaking to Gentiles, Greeks in Philippi, Greeks and Romans, we are the circumcision. We who worship Christ by the Holy Spirit and put no confidence in the flesh. It's an amazing thing for Paul to say to Gentiles, people who aren't Jewish at all, to say, you're the real people of God. Not because God has rejected Jewish people, not because God likes Gentiles more, but because God now defines his people based around the fulfillment of his promises in Christ. And those who are in Christ are his people. So the identity of these new worshipers is, it's God's chosen people, it's God's elect. The people that God has called from eternity to belong to him, those who accept the gospel. The second quality of these new worshipers is their holiness or their purity. We see this in verses 12 to 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the new people of God's holiness. And notice that it's not ritual purity here. It's moral holiness. It's a moral purity. The new worshipers are those who are being sanctified. Those who are being changed. Those who are being transformed by the Holy One who dwells in our midst. The people who are pursuing 
the new man, pursuing conformity to the image of Christ. Those who are being renewed in knowledge after the image of their creator, verse 10. Those who are being sanctified, who are seeking to walk in the Lord's holy ways. That's who these people are. And the third quality is the sacrifice by which they stand in God's presence. Their peace offering. Notice this in verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Or as he says at the end of verse 13, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. We have been forgiven by the Lord. We have the peace of Christ. And that peace is to rule in our hearts. Why do we have the peace of Christ? Why do we have our sins forgiven? It's because we have a high priest in this temple. We have a high priest, as Hebrews says. Christ is our high priest, and he has offered the sacrifice for our sins that gives us peace with God and peace with one another. Therefore, let that peace rule in your hearts and forgive each other as Christ has forgiven you. And there's a parallel passage in the, in the letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 13, Paul says it so clearly. Listen to this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one, Jews and Gentiles, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That old wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the inner court where the Jews could go, that old wall of hostility, if any Gentile dares cross this line, we'll kill you, we'll stone you. That old wall of hostility, Christ has crumbled it. He has broken it down by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, the church, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The death of Christ was the death of the hostility and division between Jew and Gentile. So that in Christ, in the church, the two can become a new man, a new humanity. The people of God in Christ. Ephesians 2.17 continues, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is temple language from start to finish, which is why chapter 2 goes on to talk about how we are God's new temple. Because we are the people who stand upon the sacrifice of Christ, His blood, His cross has torn down the old dividing wall so that Jew and Gentile have one court where they can come together. And also, as Paul says in Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female. In Christ, that old division between the court of the women and the men has crumbled as well. We are all mixed and mingled together as one in Christ, and we all stand before God 
shoulder to shoulder, men and women together who have direct access because of Christ and the Holy Spirit to worship the Father. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The peace of the cross from the Prince of Peace, the light of the world. These are the new worshipers. God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Holy because they're being changed morally from the inside out to look and live more like Jesus. Standing upon His sacrifice, which takes away all of our impurity and all of our sin. Making peace. And this is how it works. We go from the court of the Gentiles further into the inner court and all those dividing walls break down and now we all stand together as one people in the inner court and we all go forward towards the holy place and we have the high priest himself, Christ, our sacrifice. And when he died in the Gospels, remember what happened. The veil in the temple was torn in two. That veil that separated the most holy place from the holy place. Christ has torn down every barrier so that you and I can go straight into the holy place. Because we're all a kingdom of priests. The priesthood of all believers is precious because it means you can go straight to God in prayer and in worship and meet with Him. When we gather here as the church in this new temple, we meet with God in the most holy place because His sacrifice has opened the way of access directly into the presence of God. And so when we're here, we're really meeting with God, not in a distant way where we're in some other court and He's way inside and we can't see Him. We are in His very presence. Christ brings us near to God. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ suffered in the flesh that He might bring us to God, the just in place of the unjust. We are now God's new temple. And here we meet with the living God. Now, once we have entered the temple, what kind of worship does God want from us? Answer? He wants us to worship Him strictly according to His word. Now, I did a whole series on this, so this will be the quickest point of the sermon by way of review. For the details, go back and see those sermons. But God wants us to worship Him strictly according to His Word. And we said in that series, this is called the regulative principle. And it basically means we want word worship, not will worship. As Paul says in chapter 2 of of the letter to the Colossians, verse 23... He calls it in the ESV, it's translated self-made religion, which just means will worship. Worship according to my will, not God's. Worship according to what I want, not what God wants. Worship that puts my taste and convenience and preference first over what God commands. We want worship to be based on God's commands, based on God's examples, based on the things we see in Scripture. And I can summarize this in three things. Worship in the new temple should be word-shaped, it should be God-centered, and it should be Christ-focused. Word-shaped, God-centered, Christ-focused. Look at our text, Colossians 3.16, we come to our verse. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, 
And the you there is plural. Dwell in your midst. Dwell among you, plural. Let the word of Christ dwell among you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do it all. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. How is the Word supposed to dwell in our midst? How is the Word of Christ to dwell among our worship? It's supposed to dwell with us through the teaching, through admonition, through singing, giving thanks, which is a form of prayer. And then in verse 17, everything. Every word and deed you do in worship should be word-shaped, God-centered, Christ-focused. So the teaching should be word-shaped, God-centered, Christ-focused, Our admonition to each other should be full of God's wisdom, as it says, in all wisdom. And that means it should be word-shaped and God-centered and Christ-focused. Our singing, word-shaped, God-centered, Christ-focused. Our prayers, everything we do should meet these criteria. It should be word-shaped based on texts of Scripture where God authorizes what we do. You couldn't waltz into the old temple and just do whatever you wanted. You couldn't offer whatever kind of animal you wanted. You couldn't do anything that wasn't prescribed in the law of Moses. You had to worship strictly according to that word. Now, the things we're supposed to do have changed. We're in a new temple. Okay? Thank God I'm not up here about to slaughter a goat or something. (laughs) I mean, the carpet's already red. We don't want to add to it. I mean, it would be a very different church if we were still sacrificing animals. Right? It would be horrific. All right? We don't need to sacrifice animals anymore. Not because that's, that's Old Testament, that's outdated, you know. No. Because the one true sacrifice has already been made. Christ has been sacrificed. As Paul says, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the feast. We don't have to offer any more animals, not because that's been abolished, but because it's been fulfilled. And so we come in here and we don't need to offer a new animal to another priest. We have a high priest. He lives forever and he stands in heaven at God's right hand. And every time we come to God through him, he presents himself as our all-sufficient sacrifice. We need nothing else. We have no other priest, we have no other sacrifice. Christ is priest and victim. He comes as the priest who makes the sacrifice, and the thing he offers in sacrifice is himself. He lays down his own flesh, his own blood, his own life. All that he is and all he has, he spends it on God's altar, the cross, where he is slaughtered for the life of the world. And God confirmed that that sacrifice was accepted by raising him from the dead and exalting him to his right hand where he now stands and pleads his blood in your behalf as your mediator and as your intercessor. And so all our worship has to go through Jesus. That's why it says in verse 17, whatever you do, Christian, when you worship in word or in deed, what you say and what you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let that word of Christ, that glorious good news of the gospel, 
dwell in you richly. And everything we do in worship, and Paul doesn't give an, an exhaustive list here. This is just a sampling of a few things we do in worship. Do it all in a way that's word-shaped, God-centered, Christ-focused. We only go to God through Christ, or we don't go at all. We've seen who the new worshipers are. We've seen that we have to worship by the word once we're here, once we gather together. Worship according to scripture and God's directions so that we know he's pleased with what we do and we don't make it up as we go. And now finally, if we are the new temple, how does God's spirit dwell with us? So, I said a couple weeks ago, when we looked at 1 Corinthians 3.16, that we're the new temple. I've said it many times this morning. And maybe you're thinking, okay, God dwells with us. Where is He exactly? Like, can you, like specifically, where is He? <laughs> How does He dwell with us? Where does He meet us? And the answer that I think Paul would give, and that he hints at when he, in verse 16... As he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This last point is called word and spirit because the spirit of God dwells with us and meets with you through means. God comes to us through means. And the main thing he uses is the word. The spirit and the word go together. That's why the word is called the sword of the Spirit. It's the thing the Spirit uses to do His work. The Spirit and the Word go together. And through God's Word dwelling with us, the Holy Spirit is with us as well. There's, of course, it's true. The Holy Spirit you know, dwells in our hearts and He's with us and in us. That's absolutely true. When you come to church, you bring the Holy Spirit with you. And God is in our midst. But when we're gathered together... He meets with us in a special way. He dwells by His Word. He reveals Himself to us through His Word. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 11 to 12 and 15 through 18, we get this, we get Moses recounting what happened on Mount Sinai when God came down and gave the law. And he says very specifically, we don't have time to go there, but he look it up later, Deuteronomy 4, he says that when God came down and revealed himself to you in the Ten Commandments, yeah, you, there was fire and trumpets and smoke and darkness and on the mountain. The mountain was quaking. It was a theophany, an appearance of God with physical effects. But you didn't see God himself. You did not see any form, he says. You only heard a voice. God revealed himself to you, not through a form, an image, but through a voice. He spoke to you. God's revelation was verbal and audible. It was not physical and visible. He reveals himself through his word. And the same thing happens in 1 Samuel. When the young man Samuel is in the temple with the priest Eli, and it's nighttime, and he's sleeping near the Ark of the Covenant... Of course, the temple wasn't built yet. It was in a tabernacle in, in Shiloh before the ark was moved to Jerusalem and Solomon built the temple. This is before all that. And so the ark of the covenant's like over there and Samuel's asleep on the floor over here. He's just a boy. And 
God talks to him, Samuel, Samuel. <laughs> Eli, is that you? That's how the story, Eli. And he walks into Eli. He's like, what do you, did you call me? No, I didn't call you. Just, just scram, it's the middle of the night. Go back to bed. And this happens three times. You can read it, First Samuel 3. And the, and the third time Samuel comes in, Eli's like, oh, 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 oh. God must be talking to you. All right, go back, lay back down. Okay, go right back to sleep. <laughs> Almost like you tell your kids when Santa Claus is coming. Is that Santa? Is Santa here? Shh, go back to bed. <laughs> go back to sleep right away. <laughs> and so Samuel lays back down, and God speaks to him again. And he goes and gives the message to Samuel. And it says that from that day on, God continued to speak to Samuel. And at the end of 1 Samuel uh, chapter 3, verses 19 to 21, it says that God appeared to Samuel at Shiloh. He revealed himself. He appeared. He stood forth to Samuel by his word. Just like on Mount Sinai, except without all the thunder and trumpets. God reveals himself to us. He shows himself to us. He is present with you through his word. Through his word. There's no form, but there's a voice. Where you hear the voice of God... That's where God is. He speaks. He shows himself. He tells you who he is. He tells you his will and his ways and his attributes. He tells you his truth. He shows you who he is. But it's verbal and it's audible. It's something you hear. It's something that goes down into the heart, through the ears. It's not a visible representation. That's why in Deuteronomy 4, Moses says, You didn't see a shape on the mountain. You only heard God's voice. Therefore, do not make idols. God can't be pictured. He must only be heard and obeyed and believed. Trust and obey God's word. You see, when we come to church, where is God? God hides himself, which is paradoxical, God shows himself to us by hiding himself beneath the means of worship and the means of grace. Through the means of worship, through the means of grace, the sacraments, God has put his word there and it's through those means that he is with us and that he reveals himself to us and touches our lives. And that's the mystery of the incarnation is that The Son of God could have come down in just radiant, blinding glory. But he didn't do that. He gave us a glimpse in the transfiguration, but he didn't do that. He came, Son of God, the eternal Son of God, hides himself in a lowly form. In a humble little child born in Bethlehem's manger. And he comes to us meek and mild. And he comes to us gentle and lowly in heart. And no one looking at Jesus like the song we just heard. We didn't know it was you. Because <laughs> he didn't come with the, with the majesty of heaven. He came with the humility of the earth. But through that physical human life, God Almighty touched the world with his mercy and love and grace. And by laying down a human life, A divine son of God raised us to immortal life. This is the beauty and majesty and mystery of Christmas, of Advent, of the incarnation. That ordinary matter, physical stuff in the world, plus God's word, 
plus the Spirit of God equals the presence of God. And that's good news for you that you don't have to look for a mystical experience or an audible voice. You don't have to wait for angels to come out of heaven for God to make the lights flash and to, and to do something spooky and spectacular to get your attention just to know God's present or to meet with Him. No, God is present through the everyday average stuff of the world around you. You can look at a sunset and if you think about the Word of God and what it says about God making the heavens, your sight of a sunset plus God's Word and you can meet with God just watching the sunset, just looking at the stars, walking in the woods and feeling the breeze, kissing your child's face, giving your parents a hug. You can, you can actually meet with God in the everyday and ordinary stuff of the world. Where do you meet God? Where do you see God? Where does God touch your life? God comes to you, Christian, wherever the word is heard and obeyed in your life. Tying your shoes to the glory of God, you can have an experience with God. Making a grocery list with faith in Christ, you can have an experience with God. God can meet you and touch your life in the most average, unexpected, ordinary places. Because he dwells with us through his word and by his spirit working together. The ordinary in your life can become the temple of God. The mundane and average parts of your day, parts of your week can become a place that's charged with the grandeur of God. When you trust and obey his word in daily life. All of life becomes worship. All the earth becomes a holy place where you can find God in every taste. Let me finish by reading Colossians 3 as we connect this to Advent. Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When one day, not just our church, not just your life, but the whole earth will truly be the most holy place where Christ himself and the Spirit and the Father make heaven and earth one forever. And we will always be in the very manifest, tangible presence of God as we look into the face of Jesus. That's what Advent's about, remembering that that happened once, and God promises it will happen again. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence in our lives. And we thank you that we don't have to look for any kind of wild or mysterious spiritual experience that's out of the ordinary, but that you can meet us and touch us 
and give us your grace. Give us your presence. Give us your nearness. Give us your gifts and your blessings to us and all the things we need right where we are, right in our daily lives. Help us to think about Christ in our daily lives each day, not just Sunday, not just when we pray before a meal, but help us to carry, to be true arcs of the covenant that carries Christ with us. And may the joy we feel at this time of year and this season remind us to carry that joy with us. Help us, Lord, to set our minds on things above so that we can experience this world in a way that's charged with your glory and grandeur and we can see and know and feel your presence wherever your word is believed and obeyed. And help us, Lord, to set our hearts and our hopes fully on the day when our, our precious Lord Jesus, who came once, will come again to raise us from the dead, to make all things new, to bring in the kingdom, and to make the whole earth a new Jerusalem with a new temple where your glory covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. As the glory and beauty of Christ, shining from his precious eyes and his wonderful face, floods this earth and satisfies our deepest longings with everlasting joy. That's what we crave. We pray you give us a taste of that now as we worship you and we trust in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.